Today on IFS Talks, we're welcoming back Chris Burris. Chris Burris is a senior lead trainer for the IFS Institute. He's been an IFS therapist since 1999 and is trained as a marriage and family therapist. Chris uses mind-body approaches of therapy in alleviating traumatic stress, depression, and anxiety disorders. He works extensively with individuals and groups. Since 1990, Chris has been very active with men's, couples, self-leadership groups, and rites of passage programs. As the former director of counseling at the North Carolina School of Arts, Chris has considerable experience with performance enhancement. He is currently in private practice in Asheville, North Carolina. In addition to being a psychotherapist and lead trainer, Chris has trained in many nature-based models with the Animus Valley Institute, School of Lost Borders, the Foundation for Shamanic Studies, and the Center for Conscious Eldering. Chris, welcome back, and thank you so much for joining us again on IFS Talks. Great. Thank you very much, Tisha. Glad to be back with you. Welcome back, Chris. How have you been those days? Any developments or transitions in your personal or professional life you'd like to share? Yeah, it's been a busy spring. We've uh, had uh, quite a number of level one trainings. We just finished uh, two pilots uh, with a, a fairly large group of uh, participants, and we finished a, a black, the second uh, Black Therapist Rock training. Uh, primarily focused with people of color. So, um, so yeah, it's been a very busy but exciting spring with um, lots of new therapists and IFS trained therapists that are uh, now in the field. Chris, as clinicians and counselors, we used to sit and spend most of our time with clients that experienced severe relational trauma. These client systems are usually loaded with really bad relational memories and experiences and consequently are very often run by challenging, strong protectors. As IFS practitioners, we have learned that we need to spend time naming, respecting and validating these protectors before they gave you permission to attend to vulnerable, traumatized parts. Now, we know that many clinicians end up spending months, if not years, with some of these challenging protectors, feeling hijacked by them, with no permission to go to exiles, and feeling like going nowhere. We also know that bypassing those strong protectors will get us in trouble. So, who are these strong, challenging protectors and how should we address them? Yeah, I, I've been very interested in um, these protective parts. And as you indicated, they they work very hard to protect us from vulnerability, from feelings of shame, worthlessness. Um, and not only do they, you know, operate in our internal system, they operate in our interpersonal relationships as well, as you've indicated. And um, I think human beings want to feel connected. They want to you know, feel like they belong. Uh, and some of these protective ways, um, you know, do interfere with that process, not only the feeling of belonging internally, but also the feeling of connected belonging in our relationships. So I begin to kind of highlight maybe four um, types of protectors that I've gotten interested in. 
one is self-like protectors um, that do have some of the qualities of self-leadership, but carry an agenda. Um, the second is uh, kind of harsh managers. And last time I met with you, we talked a lot about critics um, and critics kind of fall in this category with harsh protectors. But, you know, there's many ways that we have managers that are harsh. If we manage manage other people or we can even parent from a harsh protector, harsh manager. Then my my third is kind of my favorite when I kind of call these these runaway firefighters. Um, So they. They operate uh, in a, involuntarily and um, tend to kind of run their own agenda. And uh, a lot of times the managers are trying to g- kind of get these parts back in under under wraps. And um, so that's kind of what I call them a bit of runaway firefighters. And then we have sort of these involuntary protectors that that even the hint of danger take over. And these are parts that uh, are like numbing parts, disassociation. Uh, even sleepy parts, so they operate um, kind of under the radar. They become they become very active and reactive to um, the hint of danger. So those are kind of the four categories that I've kind of gotten interested in lately. Beautiful. So, how should we address them? How should we address self like part protectors? Well, for instance. You know the self-like parts are kind of hard, to, hard for us as individuals to recognize. Um, often they they're very close to our identity, um, and they do carry an agenda. Often the best way to recognize self-like parts is the feedback that we get from others. Uh, so it's hard to recognize these sometimes, but we can see the way people interact with us. People uh, reflect back that you know, something in an interaction doesn't feel quite so good. And, um, you know, and if we can, if we can listen to that feedback and get curious about, you know, what was the motivation? What was the energy behind that? What was the impact? Um, it's one ways of getting to know these self-like parts. So as a therapist, we're listening to parts that have an agenda for other parts. And there's a difference between uh, kind of a, a motivation towards healing and wholeness and uh, an agenda, which uh, tends to be more fear-based. So, you we wouldn't say that, for instance, the thinking or the figuring out part is not the self-like part. Yeah, I think those are, you know, many times these parts are, are really helpful. And it's not that it's bad. Oftentimes we do, when people discover that this is a self-like part, something, somehow that triggers shame. These parts are very helpful. Um, the thinking parts have done a really good job of helping us get perspective. So the way that we want to interact with them as a clinicians um, is to really welcome them and value them um, and have them be a, more of an aide or a consultant than the primary operator in the healing process. What makes a protector more or less challenging for you as a therapist? Well, the longer parts have been in these roles, the more inflexible they become uh, and the more determined and they are that, that if, they, if, if they shift or change, something really bad is going to happen. And, it, and all these parts make sense at the time in which they were formed. So that the inflexibility 
um, and the the really stacked up fear makes it uh, makes it challenging to to really reassure these parts that if we work with the the vulnerability or the burdens that actually the whole system is not going to fall apart is going to function uh, much more and much more fluidly and in cooperation. So I think the the in in mobility of the parts make it challenging for clinicians. So you see that with people living out like relational cycles over and over and the, the, the harsh protectors come in, those critics come in, the managers come in and, and they get, they get really locked in and it's hard to change that cycle. Yeah. I think it, you know, when, if we get hurt in some way uh, or not seen or not valued, it really feels like we have to defend ourselves, um, and that we. So those. So it, it. It really reality seems like this is the thing to do, um, and that the impact of that actually we get defensiveness back. So that. Um, so so those parts feel like they really are in jeopardy. And sometimes we may be kind of in jeopardy, but usually we're less in jeopardy than we would imagine we are. Um, but those parts are really determined to save our life and protect us. Mm-hmm. Chris, could you give us more examples of harsh managers like critics? Do you see perfectionist parts or obsessive parts as included in those harsh managers? Yeah, I think the, the harsh managers can be perfectionistic parts. They can be parts that have a rigid rigid schedule that have a determination that if they don't drive us with fear that somehow we're going to be lazy or incompetent or un- unsuccessful. That you know, so I think what makes a harsh manager is there's not a lot of trust in self and there's not a lot of trust in our own natural motivation. Uh, that we have a natural motivation for connection, for inspiration, for uh, expression, and so the, the so these harsh managers use fear to motivate us because they haven't learned to trust our own natural inspiration. And how should we address them? Well, the way you know, obviously, addressing them from our self energy. Um, so the the first step is to really appreciate th- that their intention is to protect. And I, I usually say all protectors make sense in the in the context in which they were formed. So they, if we, and we may not fully understand the context as we're working with them, but they make sense in that context. So seeing, being able to see that at some point in this person's life, that protector made sense. Um, And often people don't experience having mentors that are encouraging or inspiring. They maybe were parented in a harsh way and, and went to school with teachers that, that corrected children in a harsh way. So they, they don't have a lot of reference for inspiration and motivation. Do you have from, from your own work and your, your base of knowledge around working with extreme protectors, do you have any examples you could share with us of transition points of you working with a client where it gets revealed that that protector has been you know doing what it's been doing for a long time well i mean in my own system i think some of my own own managers have 
you know, like one of talked a little bit, one of my managers operated um, like some instrumental people in my life. Um, so, and being able to, to help that part, see that inspiration that, that I'd actually respond better to inspiration. Those tend to be really pivotal points. So not only them stepping back, but also seeing the, the circular nature that there's actually a something inside of me that responds to this different way of interacting uh, much more efficiently and effectively than um, this harshness. So parts don't often see the impact, you know, so I think some of the, so reoccurring, bringing back to that part, you know, how much better I respond to encouragement or than I do to fear within my own system is I think that those are monumental changes that the parts don't see that they don't know that there's another way. So I think the changes happens when they begin to see that, that the system actually will respond better to encouragement or, you know, validation or cooperation than fear judgment or shame. Chris, could we deepen a little bit on firefighters and runaway firefighters? Can you give us some examples and again, how should we address them? I think some of the runaway firefighters, um, food tends to be one of those uh, items that firefighters you know, tend to focus on uh, maybe alcohol or drugs uh, relationships. Um, so that, uh, so they tend to operate on involuntarily, you know, for, for some reason at about 10 o'clock at night, you know, ice cream becomes the thing that I'm fixated on, you know, and there's a bit of a, a runaway firefighter there that, you know, that, you know, that's kind of ice cream time. And sometimes it's hard for me to feel like I have charge over that part. Um, so that that's kind of that that runaway part that has its own agenda and it they have somehow ways of getting executive control um you know so they may may they may have a craving they may have a preoccupation um and they may have a access to some memory of some feeling of satisfaction or excitement you know so that so they they have very complex tools to motivate the system to to being able to get in that driver's seat um and um so that's a little bit why I refer to them as kind of runaway because they 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 tend to you know they, they tend to be like the the teenager that's you know stolen the family car you know so um, so so it's very interesting to me to see how we tend to have these and often how little control the rest of the system feels like they have over them. Well, I feel like what what I think about as you're describing these these protectors is how um, like myself as a therapist sits with them in the room. And I, you know, I think about all the therapist parts that come up with challenging protectors and there's a number of them. Um, But yeah, what, what sort of advice or input do you have for therapists working with clients with, with these protectors that are, locked in 
Yeah, I think it's a really great question because that that these are the parts that tend to activate our own managers. Um, right. And sometimes these parts do have very devastating impacts on the system, um, you know, and they activate our own fears of what might happen to this person if we don't somehow contain this part. Um so the first thing we have to do is track our own system. As we know, managers, firefighters tend to polarize with managers. So if we get into a managerial state with these parts, we, we actually create more extreme reactions from them. So we, we have to be able to track our own reactivity to that. The first thing we have to do is, is acknowledge that they're somehow protecting the system. So it's not about the impact of the part, but it's the attempt, the intent of the part. So we have to validate the intent of the part is to bring something, you know, beneficial, but often suicidal parts, the intent behind those parts are to, to, to be able to escape the pain that the person's living. The pain of living is so much that they don't have another way. They don't believe there's another way to escape that pain. Um, so validating that that part is trying to help the system, the intent is to help in some way, and that they don't have other tools to uh, to alleviate the pain of living. So us being able to hold that perspective with the part begins the process of other parts in the system to, to see that part in a different way. That it's a, it's a part with a really difficult job. This isn't meaning to cause trouble, but it has limited tools of how it can benefit and help the system. Do you feel that that IFS therapists get to a point where you can be with a suicidal part without also having a part in the background that's worried and concerned? And so I, I feel like for myself, like there's always just that, you know, that part that's been trained, you know, outside of the IFS model where it's like, oh, suicide, it's, it's pretty scary. And what, yeah. But yeah. sort of like it's a manager, it's a worried manager, but it, it seems like it's a long slide as much self energy as, as can be there. Yeah. Well, I think that part's always going to be there. I think it's human nature for those parts to be there with other people. The question we have is how much of that part is influencing the dynamic with our, with our clients, you know, so we, we can own that. Yeah. I have a part that's afraid for you that's scared for you. And I have a part that wants to try to manage you, you know, and, you know, and I can have that part give us space so that we can get to know this, this part of you and see if we can help it. Um, so we, we can acknowledge that we have those parts is and often acknowledging that we have those parts really puts it on the table so that that can be, you know, something to, the client can we can talk about with the client so it's not about getting rid of our parts it's it's being able to see how much you know how much executive control do they have and um you know and and there are times that we may have to you know have someone involuntarily committed or that we may have to do something that that you know gets them to a safe place um a lot of times we can do a lot of negotiating with parts to to get um, an agreement to see if we can reduce the pain of living so that um, so that those other um, measures of safety you know don't have to be in place put in place how does that negotiation go 
Well, we want to negotiate specifically with with the part, with the firefighter, with the suicidal part. Um, so that negotiation look usually goes something like, so if we could help the pain of living, so it wasn't so overwhelming, or that there was other resources to reduce that, you know, then would you be willing to give us time and space to try to do that? Would you be willing not to take the person out to see if we can reduce the pain of living? Um, and I, I really get that you don't feel like there's any hope for that. But, you know, if you would give us time and space to work with that, I think that we can reduce that pain of living in ways that that maybe makes it so that you, you don't, you know, feel like you need to take the person out. Often these parts, it's not that they want to die. It's that, the, that this pain of living is just so overwhelming that they don't believe there's another way. Yeah. So beautiful, Chris. Thank you. Chris, we know all sessions begin with direct assess, the implicit way. How do you see the role of direct assess when it comes to deal with strong, challenging protectors? Um, that skill of direct access um, is a really valuable skill with protectors. Um, protectors need to feel seen, heard, and valued. You know, so being able to reflect back in a in a direct way to them that we understand them or that we can listen to them, you know, you know, or that we see that their, uh, their intent is to do something protective for them to feel like to feel seen by us and understood by the practitioner um, and have some empathy and compassion for them. And that's the first step in them being willing to open a little, the door a little bit and consider that there may be help for them. So direct access. So, so that's what we're reflecting to them in direct access. Uh, and because parts tend to be so polarized, especially with some of these extreme parts, that we may have to hold that space so the polarization relaxes a bit for more self-energy to emerge. So sometimes it's what, you know, Dr. Schwartz referred to as lending self-energy, you know, that we're lending that to, re to soften that polarization and actually create space for there to be more self-energy. Mm -hmm. And what about the group that you call the involuntary protectors, the dissociation, numbness, sleepness, destructiveness? Yeah. Any recommendations? How should we address them? Yeah. What I sort of found with those parts, um, and it's something Dr. Schwartz said, I heard him say one time, is sometimes we have to do a little preemptive work with some managers. And uh, that kind of got me curious because I would notice some clients that would come in, maybe they had a sleepy part and they would come into session. And as soon as we moved, even hinted towards moving towards something vulnerable, the sleepy part would take over and the, their body would shut down. And it seemed to take like a 20 minutes to kind of wake them up, you know, to do work. And so what I began to do is try to work with those parts before they cause that shutdown because um, it seemed to be easier to preempt that than actually try to raise the, the, the energy level back up. Uh, so preempting those parts and getting them into collaborative, a collaborative relationship with us so they don't take over. And these parts are kind of like an overactive fire, uh, fire alarm. You know, so we may have a, a fire alarm in my house that tends to go off just when we, we, you know, make toast, you know, it can be the, tiniest hint of a of a um 
smoke, then this fire alarm goes off. And that's kind of what we see with these parts is they learn just the hint of vulnerability or the hint of a feeling um, or the hint of going anywhere towards that traumatic material will cause them to come in and take over. So working with those, preempting those parts kind of before we move towards that vulnerable material and asking them not to do that. And, and oftentimes, if we say to the client, do you feel like you can handle this feeling? Do you feel like you can handle this material that you're getting ready to work with? And if the client says, yes, I feel like I can handle it, then we connect that confidence with that preemptive protector so that it, it, it knows that the, self, the person's self-energy feels confident of working with that and it doesn't have to take over. Um, so, and then at different times we have to check back with it. So we're trying to kind of help the person stay in, you know, an alert, you know, state, not in a, in a disassociative state or shut down state while we're working with this material. So every so often I'll go back and check with that sleepy part or that numbing part. How's it doing so far? You know, a little bit. You know, like my dentist would ask me, you know, I had a, my dentist yesterday, you know, how's it going so far? Are you okay so far? You know, so they're checking in with me, you know, so we weren't checking in with that part in that way. If the dissociative part just comes in or the sleepy part comes in, um, regardless of the preemptive work that you do with it, what's your strategy with that? Yeah, some parts start like, between the car and the office (laughs) (laughs) so so, you know I have had the experience of sort of meeting a client you know at their car you know and 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 beginning to sort of talk about beginning therapy with that part as we're walking to the office so we may have to preempt that really early because they they're they're so reactive they kind of know what's coming and they may they may operate even before that so we have to sort of determine when we have to preempt it, it's hard to work with one of these parts when the body shut down. So, right. you know, while you're sleepy, it's hard to work with sleepiness, you know, because there's not an alertness there to, to work with it. So that's why we have to kind of preempt it before it, you know, really, you know, takes over the system. Chris, have you ever had the experience of a client system uh, putting you to sleep or activating a really sleepy part of it in you? That is, that's fascinating, isn't it? Right. <laughs> it's, I would, you know, I would sort of start a session. I, you know, I worked with a client remotely and I, I think he was a good 2000 miles away and I, you know, I'd be alert and we'd sit down and start working and a little bit. I'd just start getting the sleepiness and I would, it gets really interesting. I think, I think we're such um, relational people that there's kind of an attunement, you know, that kind of happens with that. I think it's good to kind of know your system and know, you know, your own alertness. You know, if I get sleepy at one o'clock every day, I don't want to schedule that client, you know, at that time, you know, so I want to schedule that client at a time that I'm alert. And, you know, I don't usually get sleepy between eight and one o'clock, maybe, or three o'clock, you know, so to know that I'm being influenced by that, um, you know, and it's not just me, you know, so, so sometimes naming it in our system, naming that this, that this, this sleepiness isn't mine, that I'm attuning to this other person and I don't have to do that. So if I can name it as not mine, that helps me, you know, I I have asked people parts if they could sort of pull back their influence a little bit. 
that they're influencing the person so much that I'm actually feeling that influence. So could they kind of pull that back a bit and not be so strong with it? You know, so, and then as we get more and more able to kind of preempt those parts, uh, we don't, uh, we don't come into resonance with it in that way, but it is fascinating that. So it feels like it's, it's like the, the empathic connection between you and the client rather than it activating a protector in you that's protecting your own vulnerability. Yeah. I think it's more of, you know, I think it's to me, it's, it could be a protector in me, but I think a little bit more, it's kind of like we tend to kind of be in a resonant field, you yeah. know, that uh, or an energetic field or however you want to think about, it, or just in a proximity, you know, that we tend to attuned to each other a, a little bit, you know? So I think that we kind of get in that, that, that resonant place and we're influenced by it. So we have a dilemma. How can we work with those extreme protectors that are so contagious, right? Yeah. You say it's hard to work with dissociation because it causes dissociation with sleepiness because it causes sleepiness. How can we prevent this from happening and reduce this contagiousness? Yeah, I think that's where this um, preempting the part before it causes the body to to shut down um, or causes that because it has a really way of affecting the nervous system, you know, and it's harder to sort of right, rise the nervous system than to lower the nervous system. So we want to get it before it causes, you know, that, that, uh, that shutdown in the system. That's a preempting it. Um, and in our own system, how, how well we're kind of able to hold our own space hold our own bubble. And if we're kind of overly empathic, meaning that we're feeling the other client's feelings, then we're susceptible to the influence of that even more. So, so as you said before, Tisha, a little bit, sometimes we do have parts that operate in a, in, in that have learned that I need to feel the other person's feelings in order to be compassionate um, and helping those parts not do that. We, we only kind of get need about three or 4% in order to be empathetic, you know, we don't need to feel a hundred percent of the person's feelings, just three or 4% tells us, okay, this is shame or this is fear, or this is worthlessness. So we don't have to, so we confuse, sometimes we confuse compassion with commiserating, um, that, you know, that actually feeling the other person's feelings is more commiserating. Um, com compassion mm -hmm. is a, a, a loving or open-hearted kind presence. Please, where should you put the perpetrated part regarding these four types you speak for the challenging strong protector? Yeah, that's a really great question. Um, I could probably add that to the list. You know, a lot of times I think about perpetrator parts as parts that have been hurt and that are hurting other people as a way of trying to discharge that or parts that have a over identified with, you know, maybe their own perpetrators, you know, and believe that somehow this is enabling strength or so, you know, kind of hurt people, hurt people. Um, parts make sense in the context, you know, in which they were formed. So often being able to kind of get to those parts and see and help them see the impact they're having. Uh, begins to have the motivation towards changing that. Greece, and uh, what about unburdening protectors? Is it possible to unburden protectors before unburdening exiles? 
Yeah, I think often you find even sometimes perpetrator parts, um, they can be young parts that are are acting out their own injuries onto other people. Um, so those parts carry burdens. So these protectors are often aren't that much older than the parts they're connect they're protecting. So in that sense, they're young themselves. The role that they're they're carrying is a burden. Um, often the beliefs and experiences they're carrying are burdens. So we can we can unburden these protectors. Um, alleviating the role that they're in is a sort of another form of um, that the, of unburdening that they that, that occurs for them. But they also may carry beliefs and emotions and feelings that uh, in their bodies that you know much like the exile parts. So there is no big difference uh, in the way you do this work with protectors or exiles. I think the major difference is that we we have to be able to hold a perspective that that the intent of these protect these parts are not the same as the impact um yeah. you know and we have to we have to be able to see them that the the intent may be to overcome worthlessness or helplessness or inadequacies um and so the but the impact is they actually cause the thing that they're trying to avoid um so i think it's the perspective that we hold with these parts that are a little bit different. My one of my teachers, David Kaloff, would say it's, you know, it's easy to kind of snuggle up to these young vulnerable parts. You know, it's much more challenging to find compassion for parts that harm other people and to find curiosity with those parts to find out, you know, how, you know, how do they come about being in this way? It doesn't mean that we naively are subjected to those parts or that we we uh uh validate the impact uh, we're you know we're very much holding the space that the impact really you know you know isn't tolerable uh but the but we get curious about the 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 intent what is this how is this trying to protect you how is it trying to help you where did you get this way of interacting internally or externally has there been a time when someone's protector has really surprised you or even your own? Yes, there has. Yeah, absolutely. The extent to which sometimes protectors will go has been quite surprising. Um, I've worked with musicians that had, you know, maybe a crack addiction and would be, you know, in a crack house for, for four or five days. Um, you know, so that to extent that some of these protectors will go to, and and how far out of character it is with the rest of the system. Um, that's a little bit kind of why I refer to them as runaway protectors, as somehow they have hijacked the system and and they are not within the, the way the person really experiences himself and the way that they uh, they feel is in, in, in integrity with the rest of their system. With that, what? What do you recommend for therapists working with those kind of protectors? I know, I know you've been over a few times, but you know, accessing the compassion for a part that takes someone to a crack house. Yeah, I think getting really curious about the system. Um, this this client, what we found was, um, for the most part, time this part didn't wasn't really a runaway protector. He tended to he was a bartender and um you know and every now and then he would get a bit lonely 
And when he got lonely, he would kind of drink with some of the, you know, patrons after his shift was over. And as that, as alcohol hit his system, the, you know, the other parts that kind of kept that intact, you know, became offline. And then this craving would take over, you know, and the craving for the endorphins that are, are released by this type of drug is, you know, can be very overwhelming, you know, to the system. So the being able to kind of work in sequence, you know, you know, what, you know, what are the sequences and, you know, in place that causes this, this runaway behavior. Um, and so the, the, you know, if you feel pretty bad and lonely, the craving for an endorphin can be really, really high, you know? And so the part's not, meaning to cause trouble it's looking for that endorphin that it uh, that's kind of missing in the system so you don't feel the loneliness you don't feel the pain so you don't feel the loneliness the pain yeah mm-hmm. yeah great 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 advice yeah so what we see a lot i think i think we could probably you know look at most of the dsm4 is a is the book of you know kind of loneliness and disconnection yeah absolutely I guess five are now, right? (laughs) Chris, uh, you have recently presented the workshop on using IFS with groups. Yeah. Also, you have been working on a book on this topic to be published soon. Can you say more about those groups? Is it uh, to be discovered in Deepening Horizon for IFS? Yeah, I think that um, for for some for some reason I'm not quite sure, but group therapy seems to become much less of a modality, you know, over the past ten or fifteen or twenty years, and um, and there's less training in that. It's, it became interesting to me that we we decided to train people in IFS in a group setting. So we go through all the stages of group development of you know the forming, norming, and storming performing mm-hmm. we go through all of those stages you know and we train people to 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 learn about their internal system and to work with their internal system in a group setting and and uh, dr schwartz found that 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 was a preferred way to learn the model so it got me really curious around well maybe groups is actually the preferred way to actually do the therapy um and in my own my own process of do of offering groups and doing groups um, really, really beautiful, meaningful, deep work can happen in group settings. So, um, so I've been in groups since I was uh, 24. I think my first men's group was, uh, was about 24 years old. And, um, so I've been in some type of group for, you know, most of my life, um, you know, and, um, uh, and so I think it's a really great place to do the work. There are a lot of things you can do in groups, such as sculpting and psychodrama, role plays, you know, having someone, you know, direct access, having people witness your work, seeing other people's work. So all of these modalities that we use to train are available to people as part of their therapy. And if in a lot of times it's going inside this insight process can feel kind of vague and obtuse, you know, because we're trying to to work, you know, with our own system and it's highly covered up. So being able to see someone else's parts acting or in a psychodrama 
helps us get to know our own parts in a more direct, you know, way. So I'm very, very excited about the the implications and applications to IFS and groups. We're also finding that the IFS therapists seem to seem to be in high demand that a lot of certified or level one or level two psychotherapists are full. They can't, people can't get access to IFS therapists. So the more that we, especially people of color and people from marginalized populations, find someone that comes from your same culture, you know, may be really challenging. So if we can have more groups available, then we can also serve a, a, a wider, um, you know, um, breadth of prop, you know, populations with that. I remember getting to do a demo in one of my IFS trainings, and it felt like for my exile, it was really important for her to be seen by the group. She was wounded in a group. Yeah. And, you know, it, it seemed like a really important part of the healing process that might not have happened in the individual setting. Yeah, I think, you know, I think it's Albert Adler that said that um, all, rela- all problems are relational problems <laughs> you know um you know so yeah so we're we're injured in relationship so to to heal in relationship uh i think really goes to a a, a a much deeper healing and more potential we also do find that these demos as you're referring to go much more deeper and have um much um uh greater potential just from having other people hold that space with us and witness it in, in that space so, Chris, do you see IFS with groups to be more powerful even for the work with challenging protectors? It could be. I, it depends. You know, it's hard to kind of say. And we, I mean, I think we'd have to have some type of empirical study of outcomes around that, you know. Um, but um, being, able, being able to kind of role play what what we did, uh, my colleague and I, uh, Kevin Davis, a uh, close friend of mine, we, we ran couples groups and we primarily ran couples groups with, um, with these protectors. So we looked at these interactions between protectors of couples and the couples being able to see their exact same pattern played out by someone else, you know, gave them a deeper recognition of when they themselves get into those patterns. Um, and so it was, so it's really interesting that these couples found like this infinity loop of patterning of interacting between their, 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 you know, this like defend, defend, or uh, the defend, attack, or attack, defend that other, this team seems to be a universal dynamic that couples that cause couples trouble. So being able to see those protectors played out by another couple or actually being in that role play with them seemed to really help them get a much bigger, quicker grasp of that. We tend to, this this pattern, we tend to learn it and forget it, learn it and forget it, learn it and forget it, mainly because of how triggered we get in maybe our significant relationships. But yeah, I think that groups have a lot of potential to really be able to, to, to see that protector and see it in action and then know it when it gets into action in, in our own life. Are there some trainings that you have coming down the pipeline that we can participate in. Yeah, we're, we're. I think we're working on that. Sue Richmond, one of our trainers, is going to do an online circle talking about groups. We're talking about trying to have some plenary about it at IFS conference. Um, we just got through doing intro 
um, last week on IFS groups. So I, you know, I think there's a lot of interest. We had um, a lot of folks sign up for that intro. So I think there's a lot of interest. I think the um, Cambridge Health Alliance is running some some research on groups. Nancy Soule did a research study on groups. So I, I think it's um, uh, I think it's you know getting um, you know it's going to get more um, uh, accessible for folks. Beautiful. Chris, can you share a bit about your coming book that we would like to address with you soon on another talk? Well, it's been a long process. I, I have pretty severe dyslexia, so writing is uh, quite arduous for me. Um, so it's been a, quite of a long process. Um, so I have two more chapters to finish, um, and um, and then we sort of need to get it, you know, to an editor. So... Um, is, you know, I have lots of runaway firefighters that will do anything but write, you know, so it's kind of like, like ABD, you know, anything but dissertation, so anything but writing. Um, so I have to um, create space. I have to work a little bit with my firefighters to, to not, you know, take me uh, off to all the other interesting things that I would yeah. much rather do than write. So. So when you, when you are able to write, it sounds like we have a, a, a great book to look forward to. I'm hoping so. I'm hoping it's just beneficial. I think it's got some formats to it. It's got some uh, group facilitator skills, um, looking at applications for different culture populations. Um, um, so I think it, I'm hoping that it has a, at least a, a groundwork um, to that people can, can have, and then, you know, can creatively spin off of that and, you know, all kinds of different ways of doing groups. There's many ways of doing it and, um, you know, and we're doing uh, group work with uh, lawyers, trial lawyers. Um, and so there's some really amazing creative ways of helping them be more effective. Um, so there's a lot of applications for it. Chris, thanks again for this amazing time together. We have been learning so much from you, and I'm confident many will learn from this conversation today. It was a joy to be here with you and Tisha, and it's my hope, our hope, that we can keep meeting and sharing this model, our work and our lives. Thanks a lot. Thanks for all your work getting um, these really valuable resources out to the public. Mm -hmm.